Claire for playing with us, playing for us tonight. What a, what a treat, what a blessing to have such talented musicians. We're just flush, rich with talented music, and I'm so thankful. Um, and, and if you talented musicians who've been here ever since you've been here, you're like, yeah, yeah. There were years, I mean years, of Wednesday, of Tuesday and Thursday and Wednesday and Thursday nights of singing to karaoke hymns with a digital hymnal thing and I almost wanted to do a kazoo. It, was, it would have been better. There would have been vibrato. I mean, it, um, I'm just so excited and thankful for, uh, for what God has brought in, in you and uh, I can't tell you enough. And um, We don't always recognize everyone... Um, because really, your, your rewards are at the judgment seat of Christ, whether I recognize you or not. It's, that's, that's really where your reward is before God. But, um, but it is really important, I think, for you to know how grateful we are. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and uh, therefore, walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering it a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become invisible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's Isaiah 51. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. The Word of God is very clear about what God expects in our lives. He wants us to walk in the light as God Himself is in the light. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. And uh, thank God if we, if we don't need to confess any sins. And if you do, this would be a great reminder to keep short accounts with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for eternal life, a gift that began when we were first born again and is ours to live now. Thank you that we who are alive by the Spirit have been called and commanded to walk by the Spirit. Father, let us know you better from our time tonight as we pay attention to what the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us through the, um, through the, the pro- prophetic work of Luke under the Apostle Paul. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Tonight in On Mission, I want to move from Matthew to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, the resurrection message of the Lord Jesus regarding the mission that he put the church on through the apostles. Luke chapter 24, which is a long chapter of 53 verses, which I would like to cover this evening. Tonight, we're learning lessons from the resurrection, lessons from the resurrection, specifically about the mission. Now, when's the last time you worked through in any detail Luke chapter 24 and the resurrection story as Luke tells it? When's the last time you worked through the resurrection in Luke? Easter? I, I use this passage on Easter a lot, uh, and I shouldn't say I use it. I study this to teach it because of the wonder of the resurrection. And I shouldn't even call it Easter. I have nothing to do with Ishtar. Uh, but um, that resurrection Sunday is a special thing, and we do celebrate it, um, and The lessons in this message where Jesus at the end in verses 46 through 49 is going to give the Great Commission language that Luke records in this gospel. Um, This is a great study and the importance of the Word of God. That's really the message of Luke 24. It is when God gives us revelation, when He gives us information about Himself that He wants us to know, We become responsible, watch watch this, to know it. When he gives us information that he wants us to know, we are then under an obligation to know what he's told us. And with that information in us and our hearts opened by God's grace to know what he wants us to know, we're then supposed to interact with life. The details of life, the experiences of life, the people, the relationships, the struggles, the, the, the upsets, the blessings, the, the good things, the high points and the low points of life are then dealt with by us through the lens of what God has revealed. And if we'll do that, if we'll, if we'll take the time to be serious about the Word of God as the disciples really weren't in the story of Luke 24... Um, and they got another chance. This, the Lord circled back around and taught them again. If we'll, if we'll take this lesson to heart, we'll never ask the question that's so popular today in the itching ears culture of Christendom. We'll never say, is this relevant? Or how is this relevant? We'll never itch our little ears to expect a message of three ways to do so and so. Can I just get a message, five points on how to be a better X, a better whatever? Three good tips on how to do, these are the way sermons are preached today, and that you don't get that from the Bible, you get that from the culture, and you try to squeeze the Bible into the culture. The Bible's relevant. The question is, am I relevant to God? The Bible's relevant to my life. Am I relevant to what God would do with my life? That's what On Mission is about. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. He has stated what that plan is in big picture, in broad strokes, and then the specifics of how we function in that come when we adopt that lens of God's revelation, His Word. When we're filled by the Spirit with the Word of God, we then look at life through that lens, and then we're part of the mission, the Great Commission, as we we call it in Matthew 28, but also we'll find it here in uh, Luke 24. Well, we're only going to take... started talking at 8.15 or 7.15, and I plan to stop talking at 8.15. But that's only going to happen if you will listen until then. Because if you won't listen, I'll keep talking. And it'll be very awkward for you to get up and walk out. And you'll have to break through your, your, uh, your social conditioning not to leave the group. 
So don't, don't test that. It's easier than you think. But uh, <laughs> just listen with me and let's work through. And you can open your Bibles to Luke 24. And we're going to work through what Jesus does. And I thought about just doing the, those three verses, those five verses there at the end. But the whole thing is the context for those verses. And it's a wonderful story. Um, and I mean narrative for us to grasp. The setting is in verses 1 through 3. But on the first day of the week, the, you have the, the women that came to uh, adorn the body of Jesus uh, they watched him be buried on Friday. They took the Sabbath off, and they prepared their spices Friday. They, they, they took the Sabbath off because it's a day of rest. And here they are on the first day of the week to go anoint the body of Jesus as you would a loved one, a family member. You would, you would do um, the services to, for the body of the loved one because of the decay and the smell and so forth. On the first day at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Evidence. You have evidence. You have a piece of information that now you need to interpret with a, with a perspective. And if you have the revelation of God in you and you see an empty tomb on the third day, you say, oh, like Jesus said at least five or ten times that we have recorded in the scriptures. Just like Jesus said, an empty tomb. Just like, oh, it's the third day. We should have, it's a good thing we showed up early because we expected an empty tomb, but no one did. No one on Resurrection Sunday expected an empty tomb. And now we're going to get some more revelation. God loves us and blesses us despite our ignorance and our willful ignorance, which is foolishness. And in verses 4 through 7, you have angels, men in linen that are angelic beings that will give a message. Now, here's the question. Do you remember what the angels say in verses 6 and 7? Don't, don't skip ahead. Do you remember what they say? Do you know what the angels say? They say, didn't you hear what Jesus said before? They don't give you new information. They give you the same information you already have. It's awesome. While they were perplexed about this empty tomb, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, stock language in the Old and New Testaments for an angelic appearance. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? One of our favorite verses of, for Resurrection Sunday. Why do you seek the living one, the one who's alive among those who are dead, where, the, where you would expect to find dead people? No, he won't be in the tomb. This is the, the, the third day you should expect him to be resurrected. In verse 6, he's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. See, we're, we're a, a little less than a seventh through already. Now, look what happened. The angels know a whole lot more stuff than we know, apparently. They are in the abode of God. They minister to God. They see what we don't see. There's an invisible realm of the spiritual realities of the, of the function of angels. I think they occupy the second heaven and do whatever they want in space, whatever God has them doing, off of planet Earth. I think when you see funny things in space, you're seeing angelic manifestations that are generally demonic to distract us from the gospel, which is the center stage of the universe, planet Earth and the gospel. And, and uh, that's a biblical perspective on the question of extraterrestrial life. But here's the, question, here's the interesting thing. The angels could have told them anything that they didn't know, that they hadn't already been told, that, they, that, that the angels know that we don't know. Here's my question. What is all that space out there for? Do you know how big it is? There's a place, there's a patch of space that we found. Um, we, the American scientists, have found astronomers that is a little bitty blip on the, 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 the night sky. If this is the size of the moon from your perspective, this patch is this big, okay? Just to give you perspective from planet Earth. 
and it doesn't have anything in it that's close enough where we see stars with our telescopes. So it's, it looks like a, a blank spot, which just means that there's no stars close enough for us to see so we can get a good picture of farther away. I forget the name of this thing. It's like the extreme uh, distant patch or something they called it. But they put the Hubble Space Telescope on this patch of space and they focused on it and they really strained to see as far as we could because they'd never really done this. And what they discovered was 10,000 galaxies in this little bitty patch of space as far as we can see with our equipment now. 10,000 galaxies. I don't have a picture for you, but you can look it up in this little patch of, of empty space. And they said, okay, if we extrapolate that 10,000 galaxies that we can see into the entire night sky, where we've got a bunch of stars that are closer that block our vision of those farther distant galaxies, then we've got to come up with something like 100 billion galaxies. But accounting for some errors and some lack of you know, this equipment, we're probably more looking at something like 10 times that, which do 100 billion times 10, as everyone knows, is a trillion. We are conjecturing, just using our little telescopes, a, a, a trillion galaxies in the known universe. Now, some people say, well, that makes us think the world, world is insignificant. There must be billions of other planets like Earth. And I, th- I say, nay, nay. I don't think that's what that message is. That shows you that the one who spoke it all into existence is bigger than you could ever conceive. The God with whom you have to deal, the one we neglect and disregard, the one whose Bible we won't take up and read, he, he's immense. And he's infinitely powerful. And yet, here, let's go Psalm 8. He's interested in you. He's got you set up to rule with Christ over all of that vastness of his creation for eternity. You know, the, you look at science and, and nature, and you're supposed to marvel at the God who made it and who sustains it. But my point in, in bringing this up about this extreme, uh, forget the name of extreme deep patch or whatever that they, they came up with, a, tr- a trillion galaxies, 100,000 light years across the Milky Way is the, be- the, la- the last uh, calculation I read about, because in the same article I looked up. 100,000 light years, it takes the, the, the distance it takes light to travel in a year, 100,000 times that distance is the distance across this one galaxy. I would have called it the Snickers galaxy in retrospect because that's way better than Milky Way, but anyway, they, that's backwards. So the Milky Way galaxy, 100,000 light years across, and we're talking about a trillion of those. I mean, space is really big. I don't think it's infinite. I don't know how that, the, the, the limits work when you get to the end. We, we have these conversations at nighttime, uh, night, nighttime with my kids. Uh, what happens if you get to the end? Um, nobody knows what that's shaped like. It could just be a big ball. We could, like Earth, you could come back around. We don't know. Nobody knows. But the point is, um, um, why didn't the angels tell them some of this stuff? Here's the great idea. Here's the beautiful thought. The angel spends two of his three verses to tell them stuff they already know. He has so much information to share and he doesn't give any of those secrets. Any of those things that he knows very well about. Apparently the way travel works in the spiritual realm when you're in a resurrection body like Jesus or if you're an an angelic being, travel's apparently not an issue over space and time. Apparently you go where you go when you go. And Jesus will appear and disappear in this story, in his resurrection body. That's going to be what you apparently will do in your resurrection body. 
So a lot of questions I like to ask, but the angels don't answer those questions. I like, to, I like the Hubble Space Telescope. I think it's neat. I really do. I think it's, I, I like that we spend, last I heard, like a penny on every dollar of tax money goes to NASA. I think, it's, I think it's great that we know there's probably a trillion galaxies in God's creation, but I only like it because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the one who's holding that in his hand, and it gives me some perspective about what it means that in the beginning God created the heavens, all of that, and the earth. That verse also now puts me some perspective about how important planet earth is. The heavens, all of that vastness of trillions of galaxies, and the earth center stage of the universe where God is operating. Well, the angel tells them the message that Jesus Christ already told them that they had forgotten. And that's the key to Luke 24. Now, the women are going to remember in verses 8 through 10 what they had been told. And they remembered his words, Jesus' words, and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11 and to, the, to the, all the rest. So there are a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of information in the other Gospels about Resurrection Sunday, and we could piece it all together and timeline it, but I'm not doing that. I'm just tracing Luke today, okay? That's enough. Luke 24 is a big, a big chunk. So Peter didn't see Jesus first or didn't see the, re- the, the, the evidence of the resurrection first in the Luke recounting. These ladies did. And you know, in the other Gospels, there's the appearance of Christ to one of them or two of them at the tomb. And he says, like I told you, we're going to meet in Galilee. Now here, uh, these witnesses are going back with the message of the angels to tell Peter and the other 10 uh, that are here called the 11. So they had the word from Jesus who said it repeatedly. They have uh, now an eyewitness testimony about an empty tomb and an angelic revelation. So there's two witnesses. The ladies are here with, I saw the empty tomb and the angel explained it. So that's a lot of evidence, a lot of information to go on based on a a perspective you should already have that God already told me this. Now, they were Mary Magdalene, the the ladies are named here, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also, the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. So then in verses 11 and 12, Peter is going to go from the 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. That's not a mistranslation. The secret isn't, well, they, if they hid it in Greek, we would understand. No, th- these guys don't get it. They didn't get it that the thing we're after is not to be next to Jesus. The thing is to listen to what he says so you'll know God. It's the revelation of the word of God that is the focus. You know, this is the story of the stranger on the road to Emmaus. What does Jesus do? Does he show up and say, it's me, guys? Not in, the, not in the stranger's story. On the, he shows up in disguise. He doesn't let him see him. And what does he do? He says, don't you understand the thing that happened with Christ had to happen from the scriptures? And he goes from Moses to Malachi and shows them it's about the word. You didn't get it because you weren't careful with the word. In verse 12, Peter got up and ran to the tomb stooping and looking in and he saw linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened okay well uh it's almost like peter is getting an idea from verse 12 of there's something to this story that's being told to them about these women seeing angels and then we switch over in verses 13 to 16 to these other disciples that are not the 11, 
but they're associates of the living. They hang out with them. They go and spend time with them. And that's verses 13 through 16 is the setting. And, what it, how, and then it goes like this. Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, a great distance if you want to walk next to Jesus and him teach you the entirety of how the Old Testament prophesies his death and resurrection. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. Okay, so uh, in Luke, this is the first resurrection appearance of Christ. The first time Luke mentions a visible uh, resurrection of Christ where you see the risen Christ is this one. And it's a disguised resurrected Christ. You get it? He doesn't let them see that it's him. He, he, he blinds them to his identity. But it's the first appearance. And what, what does Luke use his resurrection story to do? To emphasize, in the inspiration of the Spirit, the importance of God's Word. You need it. We need it all the time because it's going to be the only way we have God's perspective. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing Jesus. So now the disciples are going to give their account. These two guys are going to tell their story. Cleopas and another unnamed disciple are going to tell the story of what happened with this Jesus of Nazareth that they thought was going to be the Messiah. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging to one another as you're, ta- as you're walking? Jesus, the master teacher who has taught these men, because they're his disciples, is now going to get a back brief from these men and they stood still looking sad and we know the tone of what they're about to say from verse uh, 17 they were looking sad and they one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days now when I read that I might think that the tone is a little bit tart a little bit terse and and it is funny it is an ironic thing that Luke has recorded here the one who knows better than any other human who's ever lived, who knows what's going on, is being asked, don't you know what's going on? Uh, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, it's, I have been informed. These things are not unfamiliar to me, right? It's, it's, I mean, we are getting the benefit of the, you know, the, the divine perspective as the narrator tells us what's happening. But imagine being these men and you're, you're consumed with, with your, your desperation, your sadness, your depression about you had all these hopes in Jesus and they're dashed. He was crucified and put in a tomb. And now people are making up stories about resurrection and angels. And so all the ladies are talking about angels now, right? And so you're down, you're, you're miserable about it. And here comes this guy. He's like, what are you guys, uh, what are you talking about? And don't you know? Yeah, I know. And so, uh, <clears throat> are you are you the only one visiting jerusalem and unaware of the things and jesus said to them what things what what are what uh, what exactly help me understand now this is how you teach a young child too those of you who haven't done it yet stay tuned you have to let them talk to help to get an idea of what they know because if you don't know what they know, you don't know what, what the next thing is to teach them. So you get a little bit of a back brief, kind of, you know, and um, Jesus knows what they know, but it is a beautiful technique to get them to articulate what they understand. Now, he is going to lower the boom on their version of what happened. He's going to call them um, uh, noodleheads. 
Not quite, but it, it's, it's uh, similar. It doesn't quite translate that way from the Greek, but um, it's because he spoke it in Aramaic, of course. But anyway, um, in verse 17, I'm sorry, verse uh, 19, the second half, they said to Jesus, they responded, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. Uh, I want you to observe. I know you don't have time. I'm not giving you time to observe for yourself, but just I would highlight as you observe the Bible here, as you look at the, what it says, this is all that you could see as an observer. You could see he was a man. He was a prophet. He had the, the capabilities of the prophets. He could heal. He could cast out demons. He could raise the dead. And he spoke forth prophetic word from God. He was in a, agreement with Moses. He was a prophet. So, see, with your observation, you only go so far even with Jesus. You need revelation. You need God to break through and reveal and that's what is missing as Luke uh, <clears throat> helps us with this problem that happened on Resurrection Sunday. They also said, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Jesus to sentence of death, to the sentence of death, and crucified him. So they, they, he was a great prophet, and, then, and he was good with God and with men, and then they killed him in verse 20, and then verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Now, do you get irony between verses 20 and 21? Do you see the irony? Irony is kind of, it's like, uh, by going to the cross is the only way there could be redemption for Israel or anyone else. Because the redemption that you're after is that we're no longer under the bondage to the Gentile rulers of Daniel 2. We don't want to be under the Roman boot anymore or the Roman sandal anymore. We want to be redeemed from that bondage to Rome or to the Gentiles. But that's a much lesser need because it's a temporal need. You don't want your country to go through this trouble anymore. But that's only for while you're here on earth. What you really need is redemption from your slavery to sin. And Jesus on the cross is the only way there could be redemption from sin. So he paid for your sins. That's what redeem means, to purchase. So we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You're like, ding, 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 you're right. And you've missed it. And that's so clear when you, when you think about what's, what, what's being said. The words coming out of their mouths. They don't understand. See, Cleopas doesn't understand. He's saying the words that are true, but he doesn't understand what they mean. And so it's... Um, it's definitely ironic. I wonder about Luke and his wry wit as he uh, put these things together. Now, Luke didn't um, author the message by the men. He's just historiographically presenting it the way he's written his narrative here. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these happened. The what? The third day. Oh, huh. That should have resonated with the disciples because I've read it from the disciples that were present, like Matthew that wrote it. It would be on the third day. I'll rise on the third day. No sign but the sign of Jonah. Three days. Third day. Did everybody get that? The third day? Nope. Okay. We'll move on. It's going to be on the third day. In verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us. Now we're going to recount the evidence we got from the, the eyewitnesses. See why you have to do Luke 24 all in one shot. You got to tell the story of the ladies at the tomb, and then you got to go to, the, to Emmaus because um, this brings that part back into the story. 
When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And since that can't be true, we're kind of sad, right? Some of those who were with us, that would be Peter, as we read it early in verse 9 and 10, they went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Okay, so that, that's our piece. That's what we have to say. And Jesus then does something that we're told not to do. He says, uh, he calls, the, he says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe. We're not supposed to welcome the weaker believer for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Remember that in Romans 14? You welcome the weaker believer, assuming you're the stronger. That's an interesting one to figure out. Like, hmm, I wonder who's weaker or stronger here. But you don't take a younger believer who doesn't understand as much as you do in, in order to hammer them on their opinions. Because they're going to stand or fall before they're judged. That's the point is who's the judge? Jesus is the judge. But see, he gets to be Jesus here. He's the judge. So he does hammer them for what they say. So I wouldn't take verse 25 as an example of our uh, authority and leadership as Christians to help others understand. So it's not my, it's not my leadership style to call people who I think should know better. Um, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Boy, that's a harsh thing to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they still don't know it's him. They just know that he just uh, buffeted them about the head and shoulders <laughs> with his words. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, how do you get to foolishness? What's foolishness? If you go back to Proverbs, you think through the Old Testament concept of folly. It is, begins with ignorance because everyone starts there. And then slowly you either learn or you don't. And that becomes a kind of an encrusted, hardened fool. When you are told the, 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 the wise way, you're told the righteous, righteousness or the truth, and you resist it and you persist in a willful ignorance, that's a, that's a straight on fool. And this seems to be what um, has happened because he taught them and told them and told them, sent angels, sent eyewitnesses, and they still don't get it, even though the tomb is empty and there's no accounting for an empty tomb that was sealed by the Roman soldiers. Was it not necessary, Jesus asks, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and, all the, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Verse 27 is one of our favorite verses in the Gospels because it helps us understand what we have in the Old Testament. It's been said in the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and in the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And that is a good saying if you don't abuse it. And here's what I mean. It has been a tendency since at least Geneva and I think before to take what is clear from the New Testament and then read it back into the Old Testament and change the meaning of Old Testament prophecies. For example, we are the church called the church in the New Testament, so that must be what Israel was in the Old Testament. And that'd be a big no-no because nobody is in Christ until the Holy Spirit baptizes people into Christ. See, that's a new order thing. So uh, my favorite one right now is Jeremiah 31. I will make a new covenant between the house of Judah and the house of Israel. So when Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of the new covenant comes, all of a sudden the folks from Geneva and elsewhere will say, well, uh, we must be Judah and Israel. So we are the parties of the new covenant. We've replaced Israel. And I say that changes the meaning of what God has said throughout the prophets of the Old Testament. 
So I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing here. In fact, I'm certain it's not. I think it's better to say that what Moses meant and what Isaiah meant and what the authors of the Old Testament scriptures meant points directly to the coming of Christ, his resurrection or his death for our sins, his resurrection. I'll give you an example. If you cannot miss it in Isaiah 53, unless you want to, unless you want to, you can't miss the death of the suffering servant of Yahweh for our sins. So Moses and all the prophets, Moses through Malachi, that's the entirety of the Old Testament, he shows them from the scriptures that he must suffer. In verses uh, 28 through 30 30 on this slide, they approach the village where they're going. So he's had the the lesson, seven miles of awesome Bible teaching. Don't you want to be a couple steps back just listening on the hike, walking on the road to Emmaus and hear what Jesus taught? Pretty sure we'll get to see the video. I don't know how that all works, but um, if, if we don't get to see that lesson, he'll, I'm sure he'll recreate it for us should we ask him. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of awesome things that we're headed towards that we can't get to now. But uh, they approached the village where they were going. By, by the way, Jesus likes to teach. Did you know that? He loves to teach. He's teaching all through the Gospels. He's teaching, he's teaching. Um, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 2, when all the nations stream to Zion, to Israel, to be taught of Yahweh, why, why can they be taught by Yahweh, the Lord God, in Zion in the coming kingdom? Because Jesus is Yahweh. And he's going to teach them too. It's going to be awesome. And, um, and so uh, we, have to, we are blessed to deal with the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us now. But I, there is coming a time when we will be taught by Jesus Christ. And I can't, I, I'm enjoying both. But I really look forward to that day of, uh, of not walking by faith as, as, as it is now and walking by sight then having um, fought the good fight of faith here in this phase. Okay, they approach the village where they're going and, uh, and he did the thing he does. He, he acted like he was going to keep going, just like in Matthew 14. He's walking on water. They come, he come by the boat and hey, how's it going guys? And, um, and they think it's a ghost, and, and they, and, but it's not, it's him. And he, he kind of turns over and hey, it's me, don't be afraid, right? Um, same thing. He's going he's gonna to walk on past, and they're like, wait a second. That was the best Bible teaching we've had since Jesus. Right? His disciples say that, well, that was awesome. You, you must have known him pretty well. Um, stay with us, or it's getting toward evening, and the day's now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them, and then, and then he does the reveal. He loves to surprise us. God knows we like surprises. He made us for this. And this is something that is being revealed about the character of your creator right here. When he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Now, that's not right. That's not right. The expression on these men's faces, they come as, as they invite a, a stranger, a guest into their home. And he, he assumes the position of dominance and head of house by taking the bread and breaking it and distributing their bread to them. That is, their faces are like, he seemed like he had great manners, except for the whole foolish men thing. But he really taught us the word. He seemed like he would know. And their faces are going to change. From that expression of just consternation, like confusion, this isn't how we do it. You don't come into someone else's house and break their bread, and we're going to have to kind of wait and see. Verse 31, then their eyes are opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So they went from this consternation sort of expression to, it's him, the one that they've been taught all this time. They're disciples of Jesus. They're not the 11, but they are disciples of Jesus. They know him well, and then their eyes are allowed to see him. And then, just as soon as they can 
catch their breath that it's him, he disappears. It's one of the neatest stories in the Bible, one of the neatest uh, um, events in our history where he, he, <laughs> he disappears. But it's, you know, it's kind of sad that he's gone. Like now we know it's him and we want to celebrate and rejoice and, and worship him as they will in the passage. They don't get to do that. He disappears. They'll get a chance in a moment. In verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? See, he was opening the word. We had our paraclete with us. We were walking beside him and the parakletos, the one called alongside who helps you, like Jesus said, he would send the Holy Spirit as a new paraclete. He, it's just like old times, but it wasn't Jesus. Well, it was Jesus. And so our hearts were burning to us when he was speaking to us on the road while he was explaining the scriptures to us. The point of Luke 24 is we need to value the Word of God like God does. We need to see it for what it is. It's God loving us with the revelation of Himself so that we can have a relationship with Him. He's an infinite personal being, and we are a limited representation of Him. And for that relationship to happen, you have to have this revelation. That's what the Word of God is. That's why we're so careful with it. Uh, I've, been ta- I've been asked before, why do you teach so much? Why does this church teach so much? You have a fellowship dinner, we're going to have food and teach. We have camp, we're going to teach. And maybe a little food, some games maybe, but a lot of teaching. We're going to go uh, do X, Y, or Z. You're always teaching. Can't even do the church picnic without a big lesson on what baptism is. Why teach, 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 teach? It's because... There's nothing more valuable that we can spend our time on. There's nothing greater I could give anyone. I mean, we could uh, play around with uh, peanuts or we could serve Chateaubriand. I mean, your call. I'll, I'll make the call. Let's, let's have the good food. That's a really nice cut of steak. Okay? And so I think we take the time, that the limited time we've been given on this earth, to focus on the Word of God every opportunity. And, um, and I know sometimes I feel like it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes you want the Word, sometimes you don't want it. Right? Sometimes you're in the mood and you're like, ah, I, can, I, could, I could eat some Bible Word, some of the Word right now, and I kind of feel like it. And sometimes you don't. You want to graze a little bit, and sometimes you're really hungry, and you know you want the Word, and, it's, and, and God meets you and satisfies your thirst. And um, I would challenge you, and I, I, I do this also, God commands us through Peter to long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby. I'm praying for appetite. God, help me with that appetite. And you know what he does? Puts me in a place of need where I have an appetite because I'm uh, in desperate need for his perspective. In verse 31, uh, their eyes were open and they recognized him. So uh, they re- then they understood what had happened to them. In verses 33 through 40, we have another appearance of Jesus on the same day. They got up that very hour. This all happened the same day. This is all Sunday. This, the very hour they returned to Jerusalem. So these guys hoof it back to Jerusalem. So they're, up, they're up good for 14 miles so far, right? So um, I, I suspect people were hardier <laughs> back then. And they're like, oh, but the, there's nothing else for us to do except just go because you're not going to send an email or a text. So they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, found gathered together the 11 with those who are with them. And then we find an interesting, th- interesting thing. Those who were there were saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. So they come back to an event. And this is, understand what's happening. Probably John Mark's house, the upper room where they've done a lot of their stuff, like the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17. And, and they're, um, they're up there and they're already having conversation when these two guys show back up about how Peter has seen Jesus. That's what that means. Peter, we don't know uh, that's like the secret appearance, they call it, or, or the, the one that isn't really 
discussed. Peter has already had a come to Jesus meeting at this point because of the betrayal on Thursday night, because he denied Christ on Thursday night. So he hasn't had a public restoration. He's had a private restoration. The public one will come as we read in John chapter 21. So um, they're, they're, they're saying the Lord is risen and he has appeared to Simon, but not to the other 10, just to, just to Peter. Simon means Peter. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. So we've got a story of Peter saw him now, and now these guys, we saw him too. And so the other 10 are like, oh, I want to see him. Peter got to see him. The ladies got to see him. Well, they were showing up to serve. They were helping doing the work and taking care of his body. He honored them in, in that appearance. Okay? We, we didn't get to see him when we love him. We listen to what he said, not as good as Peter, but, which wasn't very good. But that's, so I feel the same way. I want to see him too. And there it is, verse 36. While they were still telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. Bam, here he is. And he, sh- and he, sur- he shocks them all again. And he's standing in their midst and he says, Irene, peace be to you. Isn't that awesome? He just, right at the moment that, that, that we've got a testimony from Peter, got a testimony from Cleopas and his associate, and now here is the Lord Jesus. In verse uh, 37, but they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. Well, we wanted to see him, but now we're, uh, <laughs> they, they, are, uh, they are understandably confused. Their frame of reference doesn't allow for what is happening to them. Their whole world is about to explode into a, a perspective they haven't had yet. They've seen people come back from the dead, but they haven't seen uh, a risen Christ and, uh, and someone who will not ever die again. And so th- this is going to bend their perspective into something that God wants to do. And he stretches us. Do you see stretching happening here? He stretches us. He puts us into an uncomfortable position. And that's what revelation will do sometimes. I find out something I didn't know before and I didn't understand it. I'm not, I'm not really sure how it squares. And yet God is revealing himself in what he's saying. So we trust him and we have to deal with that tension sometimes and it hurts a little bit. But that pain right before understanding is it's, it's kind of the, um, the price of admission. And believe me, it's and you know, it's definitely worth it. In verse 38, and he said, Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, he knows why, but this is how you ask someone to think about it. Where are you, Adam? Look at yourself. Jesus doesn't need to ask, or God the Son, the pre-incarnate Christ, doesn't need to ask Adam where he is for his own information. He's showing Adam, look at yourself. Where are you now? Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? You have an emotional state, they're troubled, they're agitated, and we have a problem of faith. Their doubts are arising in their hearts. See my hands and my feet. See, I'm going to give you evidence now. You are seeing what you're seeing. You know, they're, they're, they're reeling. There's a, a portrayal of this uh, that's really well done by Hollywood. It's a rare thing in a movie called Risen. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Risen, but it's a real, for, as far as uh, screenplay producing something that would ac- accommodate what the Bible's saying and actually try to track it, they do a pretty good job. The idea is uh, the, it's the CSI Roman soldier who's tasked with finding out where is the body. And so it's, and it's really, really well done. I don't know if you saw it, but I, I would t- totally recommend any believer. I would show it to my children. There is a portrayal of Jesus being crucified. I tell them about that. He, they need to know Jesus died for their sins on a cross. Um, that's how I learned about death. I think it's right. But anyway, um, uh, Risen has a great scene in it where 
um, you are part of the, you as the viewer are watching through the eyes of a participant in the story. And when he comes to see Jesus, who he saw crucified, he has a, spoiler alert, this is like a three-year-old movie. He has this uh, almost dizzy spell and the camera does that with you. You kind of rock and you get and it go out of focus and go back to what you saw and you, did, did I really see him in that group in, the, in this little small upper room? And then he moves his perspective and he does see him. And it's really well done. I mean, that little one scene of when the soldier sees Jesus in resurrection is worth the whole movie. And that's what's happening here. They're shocked. They're blown. Uh, it's, it's blown their minds. And so you touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, which have the wounds from the cross. In verse 41, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Let's, uh, let's get to something we're all comfortable with. And guess what you can do in a resurrection body? You can eat at least broiled fish. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. As further proof, the fish that he made that he held together by the word of his power and his deity, he then in his humanity took into his body and it was there before and then it was gone because lo, he had eaten it. So that's, what, that's, that's the final piece of uh, proof for them. Now in verses um, 44 and following, we're going to get to the mission. Now he said to them, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Just like we started with the angel in verses 6 and 7. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now that verse right there, verse 44, Luke 24, 44, tells you what the Old Testament is. Today, Jewish people who worship in the Jewish faith call the Old Testament, we call it the Old Testament, they don't call it that because they don't believe in the New Testament. To them, it's the Tanakh. And that is the, the consonants T-N-K, Tanakh. In Hebrew, it's all about the consonants. You throw vowels in kind of to go along, but it's about the consonants, a consonantal language, Tanakh, T-N-K. T is for Torah or Torah, the law. As Jesus says, the law of Moses. N is for Navi'im, which is uh, the Hebrew word for prophets. And they count that as the things after Torah, like kings, what we, a lot of what we call the historical books and some of what we call the major prophets. And then they have what they call the Cthuvium, the K is the writings. Here he refers to it as the Psalms. He doesn't just mean the 150 Psalms. He's using that as a reference to all that's within the writings because this tradition existed back then of dividing up the, the Old Testament scriptures. So you have the Torah, the, the first five books of Moses, the prophets, the Navi'im, and then the Cthuvim, the writings. Cthuvim means writings. And interestingly, they put Daniel in that book, in that group, even though he's a prophet. So anyway, um, that's the, the way in the Hebrew mind, you say the Old Testament or, the, or the, the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. We're talking about 39 books, okay, 39 books of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he opened, this is my favorite verse of the whole thing, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's what, that, that's what was missing. He referred, they referred to this before, weren't our hearts burning when he was 
speaking to us, the scriptures. Remember that? He was teaching them. And they said, we knew there was something special going on here. We, got, we had insight. That's what is do- There's a supernatural work that the paraclete can do. And you need that paraclete to help you with it. There's an opening of our hearts to understand, or our minds, which is the location of the, the mind and heart are the same, to understand the scriptures. That, that's, and don't say, well, this is mind versus heart. The, the, the heart is the part of you that thinks and intends. So he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then in verse 46, which is kind of our target, we'll now skip to some detail. In verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary. And that doesn't come out to me as clearly in my English translations as, uh, as the echo that it kind of is. But right here, he said to them, hutos gagraptai, thus it was written, kai, hutos, same particle, and thus it, it has been necessary or was necessary. And so the Old Testament prophesied it, it was written, the righteousness of God demanded it. We had to have someone pay for our sins on the cross. And we had to fulfill what the Old Testament said. That the Christ suffer and rise up from the dead on the third day. Now, I am a big... Um, I've, I've been challenged on this some in the past. And there, there have been all kinds of, of efforts to reconstruct the calendar. And um, 12 times in the New Testament, it does this phrase. Um, te, tri, te, emera. This um, is a dative case. And it means uh, in or on. And that just is, that's in the noun, and it says the third day, on the third day, or in the third day. If, you, if the way you count Resurrection Sunday is after the third day, you can't, you can't get here with this phrase. It has to be on. He had to rise on the third day. See? So someone says, well, it's got to be 72 hours in the grave, and then he rises. That's after the third day. It's got to be on the third day. Jews counted Friday crucifixion saturday was sabbath sunday was resurrection that's the that's the way it works in terms of three days and um and so um i've had challenges about this but um but this has been kind of the way we've looked at it and if you ever have any questions about the calendar you really want to study that deeply and intensely the best scholarly work i can point you to from a bible believing god honoring perspective would be harold honer's chronological aspects of the life of christ and uh, it's, it is a, a, a horrible thing to read if you're really trying to, um, unless you really want to read about calendarology. But he's done all the research. He's really done how you would count and, and all that. And um, if you've got arguments, you've got to go after that work that's been done. But I, I think he did a pretty good job of, of when in the year and, and all that. And, um, so anyway, on the third day is, is the prophecy. And stay tuned, we're almost there. In verse 47, and that it be preached, that it what be preached, on the basis of his name is the basis of the preaching that repentance and forgiveness of sins unto all the nations is what would be preached. So the way it's stated, the way Jesus said it in the writing of Luke, the way Luke has recorded Jesus' words, that he focuses first on the thing that's going to be done, the preaching, and then the authority in which it's done in the name of Jesus, on the basis of this man's name, Jesus, repentance and forgiveness of sins unto all the nations. Now, I, wanted, I thought about showing you the manuscript uh, tradition difference between um, 
all the hubbub about New Testament differences in manuscripts, like King James versus New King James versus New American Standard or something. I thought about showing you that because this would be a good verse to show you the difference and how the difference is probably um, on the overwhelming majority, 99% of the differences really aren't that important. But here, I'll just, I'll just tell you what happened. In the most copies that we have, which is called the majority text or the Byzantine tradition, and that's probably an oversimplification. But anyway, in the majority, it says repentance and forgiveness, chi. It says chi right here. And this is the, tr- the, the text that I pull from right here. Repentance, metanoeo, metanoia, and chi, uh, aphasin, uh, which is uh, aphasis forgiveness. So f- repentance and forgiveness. In the um, oldest text that we dug up in Alexandria in Egypt that we found later, but they're older, like third century in some cases, 200s. Um, it says ace. It says repentance unto forgiveness of sins. So repentance and forgiveness of sins or preach repentance for or unto forgiveness of sins. That's the difference. And you could probably spend, oh, I don't know, a whole college course arguing over what those differences would be if we really pressed it. But here's where you would really have a difference, in, in my opinion, if you said repentance of sins for forgiveness, because it doesn't say that. It says repentance and forg- repentance and or repentance for forgiveness of sins. And th- here's the way repentance works, as I understand it, with all that John says and all that Paul says and all that Matthew and Luke say, okay? Here's how John never says repent anywhere in any of his writings, which means that if you have to do it, you can do it without saying it. With me? If you have to repent to be saved, then you can do it without saying repent, so it's not about the word you use. The word metanoeo means to change your mind. And if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, you are changing your mind. And here I want you to understand, what we do about our sins is recognize that Jesus paid for them. You can't stop your sins. You can't suffer for your sins. You can't pay for your sins. You can say, I have them. But here's, I think that if you're going to repent of your sins to be saved, here's what you're saying. I was once someone who said I was good enough in myself, and that sin of arrogant self-righteousness and autonomy from God, I'm saying I can't be that way. I have to trust alone in the one who's done it for me. There's a submission in that. There's a submission to what God has done. But faith is really the, the reliance, the dependence, the trusting in someone else for what they've done. You're not doing the, the doing about your sin. So if you've got a two-step thing where you repent of your sins and then you believe in Jesus, exactly what are you doing about your sins is my question because if you're doing something to save yourself from your sins, you are taking something from the cross where Jesus alone paid for it. And if you don't, if you're like, I don't even know what, you're, 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 parsing, you're splitting frog hairs here. I'm really not sure the distinction. I, I, I'm okay with you on that. I, I kind of agree, but there's a big fight about this. And um, uh, here, you definitely need to repent uh, unto the forgiveness of your sins. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I think those are uh, the same thing. And if you've got a, a believing in Christ where you're not changing your mind, um, then you are uh, not believing in Christ. Okay, so um, where does this have to be preached? Where does this have to be preached? To all the nations. Well, that's different. Jesus has been doing only for Israel. Now it's to all the nations. That's the Great Commission. And that's why we're here. 
repentance, repentance unto forgiveness of sins unto all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now you are witnesses of these things. Martyres, you're witnesses. Oh, that's Acts 1.8, that you'll be, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. So this is the great commission passage of Luke, that you'll be, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. What is that? What's the promise of the Father? It's the Holy Spirit. This is what he said he would do for them. It's what the Father has sent him to say. You can say you're going to send the, the Spirit. And so it's the promise of the Father. But you remain in the city of Jerusalem until you're clothed with power from on high. Hold the place if you want. I'm going to flip over real quick to Acts chapter 1. And the same writer starts his, uh, his second book, Acts. Luke wrote Acts, where he left off in Luke. In Acts chapter 1, he starts it where he left off. And so verse 6, when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Okay, that is the next iteration the next step in the on mission is to talk about that passage but you can see it's the same he's saying the same thing he said it again for a last visit this is uh, this is I, I think what what happens in acts one is later but not much later so this is you disciples don't have the holy spirit yet but you stay in jerusalem and you receive and where do we read about that acts two the holy spirit shows up and we begin the church age and that's the mission this is the mission for uh, those who would have the Holy Spirit. Told you we'd get done. He led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. While, they were, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And, and they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple of Jerusalem where he said, wait for me in Jerusalem. They were continually in the temple praising God. The, epistle, or sorry, the gospel to the Gentile world, the Luke, ends with these Jewish Christians Jewish believers in Christ praising God in the temple, waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up, which is, again, how the book of Acts, Luke part 2, begins. Okay, so what have we discerned here? What's the point of the story? Obviously, it's the resurrection of Christ. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the way Luke portrays it, it isn't about seeing Jesus' hands and feet. It's about believing what he told us. And believing what Moses said about him and being able to interpret the situation from what he said. And then he holds us accountable for it. But you know, even if we miss it, he's gracious and he comes back around and tells us again. He tells us and he shows us and, and we, get, we get looped back in. Uh, my prayer for you remains verse 45. My prayer, I pray, pray for me too, that the Lord will continue to open our hearts to understand our minds to understand the riches of his grace. Paul says in Ephesians that the eyes of your hearts would be opened uh, so that you would know the riches of God's grace. And this is the difference between a biblical or a divine, a God-given viewpoint about life, a Christian worldview, empowered by the Holy Spirit through the word of God, and the alternative, which is you take your pick, it's all pretty much the same. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revelation of yourself through your word. Thank you for Luke 24. What a, what a blessing, what a pleasure to work through and think through this thing as one unit, 
to understand the story you're telling, the, the, the lesson you're giving us about the importance of paying attention to what you've already told us of uh, gaining insight through your, your revelation. We know you're going to challenge us by these things that we've studied tonight. You're going to challenge us to think your thoughts after you. And we, uh, we pray that we will be successful as we walk by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.